Write On with HPL, How to Prevail in Your Writing Journey, Episode 4, The Basics, How to Write a Great Plot. The Write On with HPL podcast is presented to you by Houston Public Library. Are you a creative writer? Have you ever wondered how to improve your writing or ever had interest in joining a writer's group? Maybe you've gotten a tough critique on a piece and you're questioning whether the writing life is for you. These are all great questions. My name is Marilyn. And my name is Rachel. And here on this podcast, Write On with HPL, we'll offer you some tips and tricks on how to prevail in your writing journey. Today, we're going to continue our three-part mini-series on the craft of writing fiction. And in this second episode, we'll walk you through the process of building a solid plot. Every great story, whether short or long, has a well-constructed arc. In this episode, we'll cover how to create a good intro to hook your reader, then a variety of examples of plots that work, and also some that are cliched or weak, and how to stick your landing. That is, how to end your tale solidly. We also have some hot takes on how to kill off characters well and why, because we think if you're going to put characters on the chopping block, there are better ways to do it than others. There will only be one more episode in this first season for writing fiction, and that's next week and that will concern the art of writing dialogue. As we have in the previous two episodes about writing stories, we're going to guide you through how to do some key elements of fiction, along with some notable examples of maybe what not to do. Ultimately, you'll come away with a clear path for your storytelling style. Let's begin, literally, with hooks, but not that literally. We're not talking about how to catch a fish, more like how to catch your reader, tantalizing them to read past the first sentences. To start, here's the opening of the teen novel Before I Fall by Lauren Oliver. They say that just before you die, your whole life flashes before your eyes, but that's not how it happened for me. End quote. Talk about pulling the reader in. Immediately, we the audience want to know the answers to so many questions. Who is this character? How is it possible that she's conscious and verbal after telling us she's dead? What kind of world exists where you can reflect on your own death? What's going to happen to this story if we're starting with the protagonist's death? And what a doozy to start with a cliche about one's life flashing before one's eyes, and the narrator is flipping that over, saying, nope, that didn't happen to me, something else did. And that kindles the reader's impulse to find out just, what is this other way to die? Wow, Rachel, that is a terrific example. Good hooks plant all sorts of questions in the reader's head. Here's another example from a book I mentioned in the last episode, Neil Gaiman's young adult novel, The Graveyard Book, which really does grab your attention in just the first 11 words. There was a hand in the darkness, and it held a knife. Bam! (laughs) The reader already has an adrenaline spike in line one. It's both concrete and scary details, and yet mysterious at the same time. What will this knife-wielding hand do? Whose hand is it? Where is this dark place? The questions beguile readers into wanting to know what's going to happen. However, try to avoid cliches when writing an opener. Marilyn, your favorite novel of all time is A Wrinkle in Time, which you've previously made the case that it's amazing on so many levels. But before the show, you told me that it doesn't exactly start on a promising note. Madeline Langle, the author, wrote this sentence as the first words. It was a dark and stormy night. Yeah, I fully admit that you're right, Rachel. The phrase, it was a dark and stormy night, was first written in 1830 by Edward Volward Lytton for his novel Paul Clifford. 
The thing is, it's redundant to say dark because a storm darkens the sky. And for Pete's sake, nighttime is almost always dark unless maybe the moon is really bright. Almost any other word but dark would have been better. In fact, a character says in that first chapter a really wonderful line on page 20, quote, Wild nights are my glory, end quote. This is not to say you should keep repeating phrases unless you're really trying to make a point, but using words like wild and glory to describe a midnight storm is more provocative than that opening line promises. Good point, Marilyn. However, it may also be worth mentioning that Lingle's starting with the dark and stormy nightline is sort of reminiscent of Once Upon a Time. It feels almost intentionally cliche, which very few authors manage to pull off well. But what do you think about this curious opener from Julia Drake's novel for older teens titled The Last True Poets of the Sea? Quote, Fun fact, my great-great-great-grandmother was the lone survivor of a shipwreck. For a long time, my parents liked to point to this story as evidence of family strength. We're descended from survivors, they said. Making it is in our blood. We cling to planks off the coast of Maine. We don't freeze to death, and when we wash ashore, we marry, we procreate, and we catch lobsters to feed our children. Crying? There's no crying in shipwrecks. No need. As a family, we're not only lucky, we're lucky and we persevere. My younger brother Sam and I grew up loving that shipwreck. We wanted to see what kind of disaster our great-great-great-grandmother had escaped. The lyric was more than a sunken ship. It was our family story, long lost to the ocean's depths. Wow, that is a compelling mix of extraordinary family history, snark, and beautiful writing. I'm immediately intrigued to know more about this triple great-grandmother, how she wound up the sole survivor, and what ironies are hinted to unfold when the protagonist's parents tout so-called family strength, and also the debatable strangeness of someone, quote, loving a shipwreck story, and how it relates to their family in the present day. There's a creative writing adage that there are only a few plots out there with some variations, but that it's all been done before, to which I say, oh please. Honestly, I think that is someone's unintentional dare to prove them wrong. And by all means, our fellow writers, please join us in challenging these cynical critics to read some more. In fact, Marilyn and I have some examples of, yes, cliches to be aware of, but also ones that subvert cliches too. When it comes to recycling what's been done before, Consider what happened with the Redwall series. Brian Jakes had maybe three or four original books out of the 20-plus he wrote for the Redwall series, but man, by the fifth book, for the next couple decades, he simply recycled the same old tropes. You could count on someone getting some inspiring vision of Martin the Warrior just when it was needed, a famous weapon or relic from some previous book being reused, and oh, yeah, a big battle at the end with some noble character dying because of it. Which isn't to say that repetitive series are necessarily bad. In fact, in the book titled Children's Literature Briefly, written by Terrell Young, Gregory Bryan, James Jacobs, and Michael Tunnell, the author notes that series can be really helpful for reluctant readers because they have an established cast of characters and world, so some readers find it easier to dive in. They write, quote, Nevertheless, whatever the content or quality, series books are important to literacy development because of two characteristics— Comfort and story. First, series are comfortable because they are familiar and predictable. Readers know the characters. After the first book, they become friends. Then readers can make successful guesses about what's going to happen. 
Second, readers know that they're getting a real story with a clear problem and a satisfying solution. It's not uncommon for young readers to have difficulty getting started with a new book. When reading a title from a familiar series, no such difficulty exists. Being able to continue without the need to become acquainted with new characters and setting can play a large role in helping students become regular readers. End quote from page 166. Think about series like The Magic Treehouse on the kid side of things, or characters like Batman that have had hundreds of comics, TV shows, movies, and etc. Repetition can work for specific audiences or specific purposes. It's up to you as an author to decide if that's the right move for your particular story. But most of the time, it's better to err on the side of originality. As an example of a well-known plot that still holds up today, the original Star Wars trilogy has a three-part arc that mostly works pretty well. The first installment, A New Hope, could stand alone as it ends with a straightforward victory for the characters. The second one, fittingly titled The Empire Strikes Back, ends on such a dire note with so many unraveled threads that audiences are left wondering how our heroes will recover. However, in the third and final installment, Return of the Jedi, the protagonists overcome tremendous obstacles and things tied together pretty well, if perhaps with a touch of sentimentality. What is more, I'd also argue that the Avatar The Last Airbender original series, which is also a three-part story, follows the Empire Strikes Back-style cliffhanger with its second season, and, resembling Return of the Jedi, ends the last season on a note that pulls all the threads together in a profoundly meaningful way, even more effectively than Star Wars, in my humble opinion. Jane Austen wrote some pretty darn perfect romantic novels, Pride and Prejudice and Emma particularly, that countless readers have loved over the centuries. There are some universal qualities to her books that appeal to all kinds of readers. Some of those readers have tried replicating Austen's plots in their own writing because her character arcs are so beloved and satisfying. For example, Emma was reworked as the classic 1995 movie Clueless. Before we recorded today, Marilyn and I shared with each other that there's a recent and really interesting reworking of Pride and Prejudice that also comes to mind. The original Pride and Prejudice features protagonist Lizzie Bennett, who is the witty and opinionated daughter of a middle-class family. She encounters the fabulously wealthy, young, and seemingly arrogant Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy originally thinks her beneath him for multiple reasons, but he soon changes his heart about Lizzie, only for her to reject his affections in an infamous takedown speech. Besides Pride and Prejudice's roller coaster plot, it also serves up both plenty of comedy and also a serious commentary on what constitutes a good romantic or marriage partnership as modeled by the various couples written throughout the story. We promise the story ends very well, and it's not just for women. There are men who have enjoyed its fierce wit, too. Marilyn, do you want to share about this adaptation? Yeah, okay. So the modern take on Pride and Prejudice that we want to share with y'all is the 2018 YA novel from E.B. Zaboy, simply titled Pride. In Zaboy's story, the character Zeri Benitez encounters the super judgy and super handsome Darius Darcy against a backdrop of a gentrifying Brooklyn neighborhood and a collision of different cultures and economic statuses. Notably, middle versus upper class wealth comes to a surface more than once in the original Pride and Prejudice. Other economic themes in the original include the financial vulnerability of unmarried women and also the problem of writing inheritance wills to direct all the father's property to a male heir, and if there are no male heirs, it must go to the next male relative. So, when E.B. Zaboy updates the story, 
she decides to modernize economic commentary by addressing today's very relevant issue of gentrification, specifically that which is occurring in New York City. Gentrification, if you don't know, is what happens when a working or middle-class neighborhood begins to be sold off property by property by its privileged landlords to new wealthy outsiders, who often raise or get the original buildings and build well-to-do modern elite establishments on top. Gentrification often brings racial divides to the surface, as historically it tends to pit wealthy white property owners against less privileged people of color who rent the apartments in the store properties. In the case of Zaboy's novel, Pride instead features well-to-do people of color, the Black Darcy family, to contrast with Afro-Latina protagonist Zuri, whose father works at a hospital cafeteria and whose sister just came home from her first year of college. But Pride's not just about economics, we promise, people. It's still a classic love story, even if the names are changed. So yeah, if you love a particular classic plot out there and want to update it, there are all kinds of ways to offer a new commentary on its themes through your writing. All right, whew. We've discussed quite a few plots that have been made before, but now we want to get into some story arcs that really took us by surprise. Both titles are in the sci-fi genre, but we'll hasten to add that you don't need to write science fiction to explore a new way to tell a tale. The first example is the teen graphic novel On a Sunbeam, written and illustrated by Tilly Walden. As a quick summary, Anna Sunbeam tells the story of Mia, the newest member of a spaceship crew that travels to crumbling planets on restoration missions. Over the course of the book, you learn that Mia recently graduated from a boarding school where her only friend was a girl named Grace, who came from a dangerous and volatile planet in the corner of the universe. Also, spoilers, she and Grace fall in love. One day, Grace's family arrives at the school and sends her back home without warning. Mia joins the crew of the Atkis in hopes of reuniting with Grace, or at least of getting closure on their lost love. What makes Anna Sunbeam feel so unique is the combination of elements that Walden balances throughout the story. You have the expansiveness of the universe with a very personal tale of first love. You have the futurist space travel, and by the way, all the spaceships look like koi fish, which is a visual treat, with the ancient crumbling worlds that the Atkis travels to preserve. And then there are wholly original elements like Grace's home planet and the dangerous creatures that inhabit it. Through her combination of elements and her masterful artwork, Walden created a graphic novel that's original in its story and stunning to behold. The other title we wanted to share is Ted Chang's adult novella, Story of Your Life, which inspired the 2016 Academy Award-nominated film Arrival that starred Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. In Chang's novella, there are two intertwined premises. First, the protagonist and linguist Dr. Louise Banks narrates the future story of her daughter's life to her yet-unborn daughter. Second, Dr. Banks also narrates what she remembers about the past, in which aliens come to Earth. However, unlike most science fiction tropes out there, these aliens don't arrive knowing English. Dr. Banks was tasked with figuring out what the aliens are saying, and in time, she came to realize that the aliens have two languages, one spoken and one written. I don't want to give too much away, but as Dr. Banks begins to translate the aliens' written language, her growing fluency transforms her relationship to time itself, and she begins to know what will happen in the future, including the story of her yet-to-be-conceived daughter's life. What I really loved about both the novella and the film, and the film changes a lot about the novella while still remaining brilliant in its own right, is first the subversive premise 
that the aliens don't speak English or any human language. To engage this story, you get to learn about how human languages operate as Chang imagines the ways in which the extraterrestrials communicate. I'm a word nerd, so this exploration of the human relationship to speech and writing was, for me, elegantly conveyed. And second, the transformation of Dr. Banks' experience of time, shifting from linear to simultaneity, unfolds in stunning fashion. Essentially, Chang asks us the questions, if knowing the future eliminates one's free will to do anything apart from what will happen, could you still change as a person? And could you still live out the future meaningfully? Ultimately, I am so grateful for the unexpected and original ways that Chang pulls off story of your life. He draws from seemingly highbrow philosophical concepts of determinism and ethics, as well as linguistic theories, as he explores the inherent messiness of human relationships. The integration of all these factors makes the novella a true standout. Here are some ideas for strong endings. You really want to keep your audience guessing till the very end because there's nothing so boring as a story where you peg the details without effort. If you want to give your reader a home run ending where everyone cheers because all the subplots are pulled together so satisfyingly, you might consider the concept of a you catastrophe, a word that J.R.R. Tolkien coined. The root word catastrophe, a word borrowed from ancient Greek meaning to overturn, means everything has gone completely devastatingly wrong. Any tale about the Titanic is a perfect example. But Tolkien, who was a linguistic scholar, a philologist to be precise, attached the Greek prefix eu, spelled eu, which in Greek means good, like euphoria, eulogy, etc., to the word catastrophe, transforming this word that meant everything turned bad suddenly into a word that meant everything's turned good. And fittingly, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is one such a catastrophe. Other stories with thoroughly satisfying endings include the Avatar The Last Airbender TV series and Richard Adams' novel Watership Down. Solid endings aren't necessarily happy, though. It's slightly tricky to share some examples with you, dear listener, as we don't want to exactly give the endings away, but I have a particular book that I'm really excited to discuss with you. They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera is the perfect example for this because it's very sad, but it's also very hard to spoil a book for the readers when the title tells you exactly what's going to happen. As the title says, the main characters Rufus and Mateo both do die at the end. Basically, these characters receive a phone call at the beginning of the book, informing them that they're going to die sometime in the next 24 hours. So they meet up via an app in order to have one last day with someone else who's dying. It was a bold move on Silvera's part, but it works really well to give away the ending in this instance. The title and promise of a sad ending builds a lot of tension throughout the narrative. The characters do have a lot of happy moments before the end, and there's a very tender romance between the two of them, but every moment of joy is tinged with the knowledge that something bad is coming. You know that the ending is going to devastate you, and because of that, every chapter before the end has extra weight and emotion and importance because you want to savor the limited moments that you do have with those characters. There's a strong undercurrent of fraught tension as readers wait to see how the title comes to be and hope against all odds that somehow the title will be wrong. If you're anything like me, you'll cry all through the ending of this book, but still think that it was a beautiful reading experience all the same. That's the power of a well-written tragedy. 
And on a quick side note, They Both Die at the End reminds me of how the prologue of Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare gives away the ending at the beginning of the play. Within the first minute of a play, you learn that a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Yet, despite the fact that the play gives away the plot climax, Romeo and Juliet is one of the most famous and well-loved tragedies in the world. This just shows us that not only do endings not need to be happy, they don't even need to be surprising to tell a good story. Strong endings should also give the story a final dose of meaning or purpose. One of the most frustrating novels I have ever read turned out to be the 2019 adult novel Inland by Taya O'Brien. Warning, spoilers ahead. Inland was the book of the month for a book club I was in at the time, and yes, it seems to have gotten some critical acclaim. But after four weeks of reading it, when the six of us club members gathered to discuss it, none of us, not one of us, could tell you what the point of the book was, what, if anything, made it worth reading. Maybe if you've read Inland, or you will later, and you like it and can tell me why, let me know via HPL's social media. However, you may want to keep in mind that it has some graphic violence in a couple places. Good to know. Yes, it's good to ask yourself while you write, do I know what I'm trying to say to my reader? Like that old expression about leading a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, it's true that you can't tell your reader what to think, but you certainly can do your best to lead them in the direction that you're hoping for. Or even better, there are some writers out there who write such complex works that by the end, there's more than one way to interpret the conclusion, like in Lois Lowry's Newbery award-winning novel, The Giver. In The Giver, Lowry leaves the fate of the protagonist up in the air, which has sparked debate among readers as to whether he survives or not. Maybe you have a great idea for the conclusion to your plot, but do you know what the very last lines will be? Sometimes the hardest thing is to end a story with a clincher. Here are some tips on how to write ending sentences. Number one, consider taking a panoramic shot. It could include the literal horizon you're describing, yes, but it could also be about time as well. Something that connects the past and present that your characters just came from to the future that they're walking towards. For this type of ending, consider the last lines from the 2021 YA novel, Victories Greater Than Death by Charlie Jane Anders. As for me, I'm never going to sleep again. The whole room is quiet. feels like the stillness of the grave. There's a threat out there that the most powerful creatures in history couldn't deal with, and we still don't even understand what it is. Anxiety and dread are churning inside me. I know everything there is to learn about a thousand planets and their people but I don't know the one thing I need to keep my friends safe. This adrenaline-pumped ending builds tension and sets up for a sequel. It also denies readers a perfectly happy ending by mentioning the ongoing threat that couldn't be covered in one book. Second, another way to end a book is by conveying the last lines in words that comprise just a few syllables. In her teen novel Legendborn, Tracy Dion writes these last two lines in the voice of protagonist Bree Matthews. I sprint faster and faster, and then I'm in the air, leaving the earth and trees far behind me. Page 490. I love how powerfully restrained these sentences are. There are only three words that have two syllables, and the remaining words are just a syllable each. Dion might have weighed down the ending with tons of multisyllabic words and long, stretched-out sentences, but instead she sends Bree first into a sprint, then a flight. 
This all comes through in the beautiful rhythm of Dion's word choices. Third, consider this way to end the first book of a trilogy coming from the adult novel A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. Quote, Boats with world banners and boats without. Boats from other lands across other seas, from near and far, wide and away. And there, tucked between them, she saw a proud, dark ship with polished sides and a silver banner and sails the color of night, a black that hinted at blue when it caught the light just so. That one, thought Lila with a smile. That one will do. Page 398. This ending indicates that the character's story continues after the last page. It also sets up for the next book in the trilogy. Lastly, it resounds with a sense of triumph and freedom in its last words. Here's another great closing line, this time from We Hunt the Flame by Hafsa Faisal. Quote, It was time for change to sweep across Arawia, this Zumra at its helm. He had a brother to save and a father to liberate through death or otherwise. There would be more walls to hurdle, battles to triumph, and victories to glean. But walls were nothing for a Hashishin, and the Prince of Death never left a job unfinished. Page 464. What a visceral sense of movement this conveys. The character's work remains unfinished, setting up character goals for the next title in the series. Just one last thing to discuss, and that's how to kill off characters well, especially beloved ones. Yes, you heard that right. Here at Write On, we firmly believe in writers being intentional with the lives and story arcs of their characters. When writers invest in their characters, when they really take time to write their people, well, the quality shows. And sometimes a writer realizes that a certain character, or characters, are destined to die during the story, and that this will advance the plot in a meaningful way. We're not saying that in every story someone needs to die, not at all. You know your story better than we do, as we often say. But in case you do need to have a character die, we have some things for you to consider. The first thing to consider is how to be intentional. Can you guess if you'll regret killing this character? How will this character's dying advance your narrative or the development of other characters? For example, is it perhaps the sort of sacrificial death that can allow the rest of your characters to escape their otherwise certain doom? Or perhaps this character's death demonstrates the profound injustice of the system or the world, which will open up your protagonist's eyes to see how things desperately need to change, and maybe is the catalyst for your protagonist to know what to do next. Can you name the goal of your character's death? What it will achieve in your story? In his graphic novel series Boxers and Saints, Jean Luen Yang writes a plot in which one of the main protagonists kills another major character. The moment leading up to the death is so powerful. We'll try not to give too much away. But the characters are talking to each other, with the would-be murderer trying to persuade the would-be victim to change their religious beliefs, and the victim making the case for their convictions and knowing that their faith is about to cost them their life. And then it does, and the resulting ramifications for the killer are heartbreaking, both for the killer's conscious and the next moments in the plot. Wow, yeah. Yes, if you're writing a multi-part series, can you guess if this character's departure will jeopardize the plot? and you'll have to create someone new from scratch to solve the problem? Consider the situation that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was in after his Sherlock Holmes stories took off to skyrocketing fame. He was so sick of writing Sherlock Holmes stories that in 1893, he actually killed off the character in a magazine story titled The Final Problem. 
Sherlock and his nemesis Moriarty tumble off a cliff next to a waterfall, and the result was so unpopular and so devastating to the public's imagination that 20,000 people canceled their subscriptions to the magazine that published the fatal tale. The publisher was The Strain Magazine, if you want to know, and we've tagged a link to the article in our show notes. Yet by 1901, Doyle felt compelled to bring Sherlock back because he was so popular, and in turn, Doyle wrote the famous novel The Hound of the Baskervilles. Doyle later explained Sherlock's fake death in his short story titled The Adventure of Empty House. According to this story, Sherlock needed to make it look like he'd died because his enemy Moriarty still had dangerous accomplices on the loose. So that's all to say no one can foretell the future 100% accurately, but try to ascertain as best you can if your character's death will jeopardize future installments. I also recommend that writers refrain from what I would argue is cheapening death, either by cheap resurrections that come out of nowhere, such as what happened with Sherlock, or the sort of death that occurs just to shock the audience. A well-written resurrection works best when the author has dropped hints earlier in the plot that resurrection is possible. The original Harry Potter series might be the most well-known young adult literary example to work with here, although C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia also has this plot device, too. Yes, in Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling kills off several characters, particularly in the later books, but her driving thesis is that death is not the end. The seventh book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, even borrows a Bible verse that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this series, there is still existence after death, which Rowling shows through ghosts, apparitions of Harry's loved ones, and through a major character's resurrection in the last book. All these things form a pattern over the course of the seven novels, which is why it's a more substantial and believable premise than if she had simply resurrected a character with no prior indication that it was even possible. It's also important to ask yourself questions as you write, such as, is there an afterlife in my story, or a spiritual realm, or are ghosts or visions of the deceased possible in this world I'm creating? On the other hand, consider the teen novel Elatsaway, written by Darcy Little Badger, in which death is so taboo that it's not something to even be discussed in the culture of Lupin Apache teen Ellie. Still, this taboo creates remarkable tension with the unstoppable pattern of dreams that Ellie has of her murdered cousin speaking to her from the grave, which drives the plot forward. Another way that death is sometimes cheapened is when a character is killed off just to shock the reader. This might be a hot take, and I don't want to spoil which character it is, but I think the death of a central character at the end of the Divergent series is the worst. It made me dislike the entire series because I felt like the death only existed to differentiate the Divergent series from the Hunger Games series. Speaking of the Hunger Games original trilogy, there is a lot of debate among readers as to whether the amounts of violence and death in the series are too much. Some readers, myself included, feel that the violence was meaningful in the start of the series, but by its conclusion, the deaths became so gory and over-the-top that to myself and some others, they felt more and more ironic than anything. However, other readers like me think that the increasing violence is an intentional statement rather than just there for shock value. After all, a lot of the violence in the books mirrors real-life situations, particularly in war zones, and the way Katniss's PTSD manifests itself is accurate. In case you're interested in whether the spectrum, ranging from meaningful to just for shock value, can apply to your story, or whether you wanted to read further, 
we've tagged a link in our show notes to a Wired article. It's about the Mockingjay film, which was the last installment of the Hunger Games films, and it's about whether young audiences are negatively impacted by fictional violence, or whether they can actually grow to develop empathy in response. Just a few more things to consider as we approach the end. No pun on mortality intended. First is that our next episode will be the last in our mini-series on the craft of writing fiction. In this upcoming episode, we'll discuss the importance of dialogue and how to make it believable. Keep your eyes open for it to drop next week. Next, here's an idea. Consider planning the major plot points of your story early in your writing process. Write them out and keep the outline nearby where you work for easy reference. A plan is not setting your initial ideas in stone, but rather plotting the essentials and not the particulars will allow you to still discover new characters and directions in your drafts as you go along, while keeping you focused on what your story's goals are. And if you do this exercise, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post your answers to social media and use the hashtag WriteOnWithHPL to share your writing with us. We'd love to take a look and see what writing you're working on. Write On with HPL, How to Prevail in Your Writing Journey, Episode 4, The Basics, How to Write a Great Plot. The Write On with HPL podcast is presented to you by Houston Public Library. <laughs>